This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. So if you've been uh, at Trinity for uh, a little bit, usually it's, it's Kyle and I. Um, but we have this special event today where our sister church, La Travesia, that meets after us. You guys remember them? They start playing music usually um, as we're trying to talk back here and, and do, they do their mic checks and stuff. Um, they are becoming self-governing um, in our denomination, which is a huge day for them. And what that means for us is that we have not only uh, some of our governmental structures, church-wise speaking, from Florida. I've talked a little bit about this earlier if you've been with us for a while. Um, we have some of those, those people with us this morning. Uh, and then we also have some people of the history of all of our churches down here, one of those being Ronnie Garcia. Now, for many of you, Ronnie Garcia needs no introduction uh, because just over a year and a half ago, uh, he was the senior pastor here at Trinity. And he left, and I became the senior pastor of Trinity. So many of you know him. Right now, he's the senior pastor of Denver Presbyterian Church in Denver. But without going into too much more detail, Ronnie, for many of us, has been our pastor, our mentor, and our friend. And we're excited to have him back and preach God's words to us. So, Ronnie, come on up. Thanks. If you know me, uh, I cry a lot, and it's only gotten worse. <laughs> Good morning. Happy Advent, everyone. Uh, let me just begin by telling you that um, God's people are a people of a story. Like, we all share a common story. It's a story, but it is a true one. And in fact, each week we come together to remind each other of that story. But more than just telling a story together, we also inhabit a story. We are story dwellers. And when a person loses sense that they inhabit a story, they actually begin to feel a void of purpose in their lives. See, we are living a story and we are looking with the eyes of faith to see God at work in our world. Now, because we are story dwellers, our souls can see metaphor. We actually inhabit and create metaphor. And we do that most especially during Advent. I mean, just look around. Things have changed. The decorations, it's beautiful. Or maybe think about what you've done in the past, right? Maybe you have attended a candlelight service, and that's where we come together uh, we turn off all the lights and we sit in a dark room. And why? Because we know from the story that there is a real thing called darkness. There is a deep shadow cast across the world, and sin has made the world and our lives a real place of sadness, tragedy, and loss. And in this season, we sing special songs, don't we? Songs of waiting, songs of lament, of expectation, for someone to come and to fix it. We plead in our songs, O come, O come, Emmanuel. That word, O, that is a pleading word. Please come, please come, Emmanuel. But we don't only sing about the darkness, we also sing about light. 
And our Advent readings tell us that, that those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And so we don't just sit in dark rooms. We light candles and we drape lights across every part of our homes. And we do this because it tells the story. And songs must be sung and light must be seen. And the light is the author's clever way of signaling to the actors that something is changing. And we're the actors and the characters in the story. And so then our songs ultimately change, right? And we shout and we, and we don't just sing it, but we believe it. Joy to the world. Like really, like joy to the world. And we do this because it's Advent. And we enter remembering that God has invaded this dark world, and that it really matters. And so this morning, we're going to go to the very beginning of Advent, the first Advent, with the story of Adam and Eve. And as we read it, you'll notice even as it plunges immediately into darkness, embers and this warm glow of redemption is just as immediate so we're going to study this first Advent story in two ways. If you are a note taker, we're just really going to walk through the text, the first half, and we're going to see this redemption scene in the light of pursuit. That's my first point. And then second, the light of promises. So pursuit, promises. And by hearing God bring light to this newly darkened world of Genesis 3, you're going to hear a whisper of a king. And by studying God's actions, you're going to learn what this future king is like. You're going to recognize him when you see him. So with that, let's get right into God's word. I want to invite you to stand in reverence to God's word. This is the very, very best part of the whole sermon. You may take brief naps right afterwards. This is Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one not wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." And to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, 
you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. The grass withers, and even the flowers will fade, but not these words. These words will remain and stand forever. May he bless it for us. Amen. You may be seated. Do you, um, you remember a moment in your life when you first, the moment when you first encountered the brokenness of this world? You know, when like the naivety and the innocence of your youth was broken. And for some of you, you have never known a day without the sadness of that brokenness. But for others of you, there's, there's an event so I am uh, number three of four kids. I have two older brothers, and my brothers are, um, well, they're Mexican because I'm Me- my parents are Mexican, but they're Irish twins. Y'all know what that is, like when they're born in the same year? And so my brothers are five years older than I am. So when my oldest brother was nine years old, I was four, and he was just starting to get into making these model cars. And if you're around for the 80s, you know what I'm talking about. They're like highly detailed and you paint them, you have this glue, it takes a lot of time. And he was getting into that. Now, <clears throat> I'm not sure why I did it, but a thing happened. And I grabbed the model car and I threw it against the wall and I shattered it. Now, I don't know what I thought would happen, but I destroyed it. And as soon as I did, I had immediate feelings of, what have I done? Oh, I I wish I could undo it. I want to fix this, but I can't, and it's irreparable. Now, nothing my brother did merited this reaction, And his nine-year-old eyes immediately filled with tears. And I could see the pain that I caused. But just as immediately, he grabbed a metal lunchbox. Y'all remember those? (laughs) The ones with the matching thermos and the top, kind of you can pour, use as a drink. Mine was He-Man. He grabbed it. I took off running. He runs faster. And at point-blank range, he threw that lunchbox at my head. And I turned around, and it hit me square, and my head busted open, y'all. And like heads bleed. And immediately, I am covered in blood, and I sat there and cried with my hands full of blood. But I don't actually remember the pain. The pain is not what I remember. I remember being frightened. More than pain... There was a broken heart. I still couldn't believe what I had done. I wanted to put the model car back together again, but I couldn't. Now, if you can feel that, 
in my story, then you can see what's happening here in Genesis chapter 3. It's this painful sense that something has come, a darkness, and it can't be fixed. Darkness has broken through. Adam and Eve know it, and we, together with the world, have fallen into cosmic deformity and darkness. And in a very real way, that darkness remains with us to this day. And you know this darkness. You feel it in your bodies that don't work the way they should. You feel it in your marriages that are hard. You feel it in your lives. You feel it in your worst fears. The story starts there. But it doesn't end there. See, right away, even as everything's plunging into darkness, redemption is already breaking into the story. And we see this ember of light breaking in this darkness. See, if you'll remember, God had said to Adam and Eve, like, hey, this garden is yours. Like, have at it. Like, may this entire garden be this eternal banquet of love and delight and communion But please, just don't eat from this one tree. And you're going to have to trust me on this just because you love me. And Eve grabbed that model car and smashed it. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, delight to the eyes and was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit, ate, and she gave some to her husband. Verse 7 And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves. And we all know this story, like we know this story, and that's why it's so easy to forget and miss that this story opens with the tragedy of human hiding. This is tragic because you and I were not made to hide. We were made for intimacy with God and with one another, They have gone into hiding, and we have been in hiding ever since. Now listen, we tell the truth about this tragedy, but we also remember this is a real story, and that this is not the end of the story, because immediately God, the story moves right into God's pursuit. This text depicts God walking in the garden, Now look at me, listen carefully. This is not about God taking an afternoon stroll. He is pursuing his people. As soon as you hear the crunch of the fruit, then the very next sound that Adam and Eve hear is in verse 8, the sound of the Lord walking. Like, think about this. Everything is now falling. A darkness has come. Adam and Eve's heart aches like nothing that they have ever experienced. And God says, I'm not walking away from this. I'm walking to you. And God speaks to them to bring them out of their hiding to be seen. And these are perhaps some of the most beautiful words in the whole Bible that have ever, perhaps have ever been written on paper. We see God pursuing them at their moment of paralyzing shame. And he does it with so much warmth. 
See, God's light produces warmth. It doesn't just burn, it warms. Well, how so? Look at these questions. He asks a series of questions in verse 9, and then again in 11, and verse 3. Look, in verse 9 it says, he says, where are you? Verse 11, who, who told you that you were naked? Verse 13, what is this that you've done? And it's really important for you to see this. It's not that God doesn't know the answer or that he personally needs an answer. It's that they need the answer. With the same lips that are still stained with a forbidden fruit, the juice of this forbidden fruit all over their mouth, that same mouth needs to learn to speak truth again. And they need to hear what is true. And they need to hear what is beautiful once again. These are questions of restoration. God is bringing them back. God says, you can tell me where you are. And you can tell me what you've done. Because I already know and I'm pursuing you. I'm staying. I will pursue you in your shame. And here's the question that I have for myself, and I, I want to invite you into like my inner life. Does the reality of God's pursuit of me in my shame have anything to do with my real life? All the things we feel, these things we feel about ourselves, our self-hatred or presumption, our insecurity, these things that seem to define us in our soul, like this soul misery. I want you to locate those things. I want you to locate that darkness, that estrangement, that shame, that hiding into the larger context of a God who runs after you right away. You know, many of us are living as if it's God who's hiding in the garden and we're pursuing him. That's not true. That is not the story. The story of the Bible is a God who comes to his people first. He came to Eve. He came to Adam he comes to you and to me. And when you struggle with pride or despair or just profound shame, do not hide and for good heavens, do not try to cover yourself. Do not, God doesn't run away from us. He runs to us. Can you see in this first half this warm, glowing redemption in this text displaying like the light of God's pursuit. Let's keep going to our second point. We looked at the light of God's pursuit. Let's look now to the light of God's promises. So our passage continues. Verse 13 ends with Eve telling God what had happened. She says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then from verses 14 to 19, it doesn't appear this way in your bulletin, but if you have your Bible open, you'll notice it's all indented, the translators, 
did you a favor there. You'll notice that it's indented because it's almost in the form of poetry, this elevated prose. And what follows is this series of promises. Like God is resolved to do something. Promises in a moment of tragedy do something profound. So if you can remember my story of smashing the model car and the sadness that I felt in my heart, even as my hands are covered in blood, my mom immediately came to me. There is a powerful force of love that these Latin mothers are armed with. There is a kind of uh, strength that is hard to describe. Uh, and the power of my mother's love, it's not to conquer, but I feel like it can make the ocean stand still. So my head continues to bleed, and at this point, my clothes are soaked in my blood, and my mother seems unnerved. She's serious. But somehow, somehow the, the seriousness of her presence actually comforts me. So she grabs a dish towel, she presses it against my head, and she holds my head close to her chest. And now I wasn't really crying until I nestled my face into her chest with her hand on my head. And now she's getting bloody too. And I kept saying, I am... So sorry, Mama. I'm so, so sorry. And she gently hushes me. And I ask, like, am I going to be okay? Am I going to be okay? She says, yes, mijo. You'll be fine. I said, well, how do you know? She says, because I said so. Mothers have a unique way of imaging God that is so powerful, a power, an elegance, a calming presence, but there's this fierce surety to them, because I said so. Now listen to me, there is no doubt in my four-year-old heart that if my mom promised that things would be okay, then things would be okay. Now, I don't have many memories of what happens next. I know that I went to the ER. I know that I got a ton of stitches in my head. I know that I have a big scar on the back of my head that I still try to hide to this day. But what I really remember is getting soft serve, a soft serve at McDonald's afterwards. Just me and my mom. Now, this is a big deal. We come from a very humble family, so we did not eat food outside of our home very often, so this was a big deal. And there I was, eating ice cream, paid with money that I didn't have. Promises and provision. If you can understand a little bit of that, you can understand what this next section of Genesis 3 is all about. And if you read it carefully... You'll feel its warmth, and you'll see its light. That's the story. 
If you've ever studied Christian theology, you know that this next section is foundational for theology of God, man, and the world. And I can't get to every detail, so let me just quickly highlight a few points in this text. And these words are true because God said so. First, there is a promise that evil will be destroyed. All the darkness, alienation, Disease, sorrow, and death will be abolished. Now, this sounds lofty, but these are not abstractions. In concrete ways, these manifestations will be rolled back. And I know you can understand this. You know all too well what it is like to live under the curse. That curse will be vanquished. Verse 14 starts by God saying to the serpent, The serpent is this figure of evil. He says to the serpent, Because you have done this, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. These are words of humiliation and of defeat. That is what God is promising. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. In other words, he's saying your alliance will be broken. You'll never get that alliance again, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Of course, to the head being a fatal blow. This he that surfaces in this text is becoming more than just a whisper of a king. Who is this he? Verse 15 is a poetic way of promising to the evil one that while he will wound the offspring of Eve, this eventual redeemer, he is saying to him, he will end you. He's saying, you've messed up. It's over. Your destruction is sure. Who can put death to death and how? And second, there is a promise of provision for Eve and then to Adam. God speaks first to Eve, verse 16. He says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And then God says to Adam, verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you and in pain, you shall eat of it. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Now, these passages are not the ones you write in cute calligraphy and put in your kitchen. There is a darkness and a weightiness to these words. God said to Eve and to Adam that their rebellion would result in death, and it did. But what interests me is what God is doing in the middle of this death, in the middle of this darkness, In this precise moment of sadness, God is saying, Eve, you're going to have babies. Adam, you're going to have a farm. And and it's going to be hard, but stuff's going to grow. You're going to have kids, and it's going to hurt. And maybe raising them will hurt even more. And you're going to eat Plants of the garden in your hands will bleed because there are thorns on those plants. It's going to be hard, God says, but my purposes remain 
and they will prevail even, even in this darkest moment. Like, isn't that beautiful? Like, in the middle of cosmic, universal, mind-warping corruption and death, God is talking about babies and food. (laughs) Why? Why? Because God's promises overcome, even when things look bleak. God said so, and so it is. God promised that death will be destroyed and that his promises overcome even the consequences of a curse. And this is not a fairy tale. This is not a fantasy. And this is not a game. His promises of restoration will prevail. And for this, thing, for this reason, things like beauty, things like light, they really exist And these promises define the very story that you and I are inhabiting. God's promised redemption is where the story is going and how it ends. Light, not darkness, is the last word in this cosmic story that we are living. And what this means is that the Christian faith then is a faith governed by promises. Christianity is not fundamentally about what you do or do not do. Christianity is fundamentally about God's promises about what you believe or what you don't believe. And if it's not God's promises that define your life, then it is not Christian. And so our lives are intended to live in that light. Our lives are characterized by how we respond to these promises. It, it gives us this wildly hopeful disposition. And so when it starts getting dark early in Denver, it gets dark at 445. We see that darkness and we protest. We implement our weapons of metaphor and symbolism. And we come together and we start singing certain songs and we start hanging thousands of lights. We put up ornaments. We bring greenery inside the house. We make cookies. We drink mulled wine and coquito. We wear hilarious Christmas sweaters. We send pictures of our family to one another. We hang stockings and wreaths. We burn candles with aromas and sp- of spice and cinnamon. And why do we do this? Because we understand that God has made promises to his people and that it matters. Like it matters. Everything is different because of those promises and God is keeping them. And we live in those promises and we reflect them in our lives. So let me just quickly conclude. Adam and Eve plunged into the darkness. But just as immediate, God counters with redemption. That is who God is. This redemption, it begins with his immediate pursuit and then with his unbreakable promises. His pursuit and promises are like creating this warm ember of light against the cold darkness. 
Darkness is not the last word in our story. You know, I think about Eve in my quiet, imaginative moments, and I can almost like hear her sobbing words like mine. I am so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. And just like my mom, I can almost hear God gently shushing her, allowing her tears to soak him. God redeems Eve's story, and he gives her a lineage of honor. You know, I mentioned earlier in verse 15, we see God promising this child from her lineage that would ultimately become the redeemer, the protagonist of the story of all of history. Now, Adam and Eve would never meet this great, 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 great grandson of God, but they would know him. And let me explain why. In chapter 2, we're told that Adam and Eve were naked and they were unashamed. But then after eating the fruit, their nakedness accuses them. They feel shame and they hide from God and they try to cover their shame with fig leaves. But their attempts to heal their wounds and cover their shame was not enough. And in this story, we really, we really see the horror of sin. It's not pretty. It's not delightful. It's awful. And sin brings death. And we need to be honest about this. We need to be honest about the deep sadness and shame. As it was for Adam and Eve, the healing of our wounds and the covering of our shame is necessary. The fig leaves, you guys, were not about clothing. It was about covering something to deal with the shame. In the very last verse of our passage, verse 21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. God was dealing with their shame. We don't know where these skins come from, but it appears that God has killed an animal to cover their shame in a world that had never seen blood spilled he covers an animal he kills an animal to cover their shame and so from the very beginning even in the moment of Eve's broken heart God has provided a covering for his people's shame how through the death of another on their behalf that innocent animal our first parents had a foretaste of what that eventual redeemer would do, the death of another on their behalf. And with a trembling and holy voice, the New Testament would clarify and tell us with perfect clarity, behold the Lamb of God, behold the sacrificial Lamb of God who takes away the sin who takes away the shame of the world. This king pursues. This king fulfills promises. This king sacrifices himself to cover our shame. And he clothes us with righteousness. 
And what was true of God's actions in Genesis 3, in Genesis 3 is manifest in the king. Jesus is Emmanuel. Isn't that what we sing? God with us. Jesus is God with us. Of course the actions of God would be the actions of Jesus. Church, this is your story. Shame is real. Darkness is profound. Wounds are persistent. This is where you and I live. We know this from the story, but the story does not end there, and you know where it ends. And so for today, light candles, decorate with tinsel, sing songs, give gifts, eat Christmas cookies, all of this to tell the story, to remember that God has come near in our darkest hour. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for these precious words that you pursue us in our shame and you give us promises. You have been so, so kind, so kind to us. You're so gentle with us, Lord. And we bless your name and we thank you. And we pray that these holy, ancient, sacred words, these true words would tell us who we are and that we would believe it. And you would help us to believe. Lord, be with us this Advent season. We belong to you and we rest in the name of Jesus. Amen.